Hello and welcome everybody to another edition of Career Education Report. I'm Jason Altmeyer, and I consider this episode to be everybody's holiday present because we have been doing this now for a year. This was our first year of the podcast. This is our last episode of 2022. And I wanted to bring on somebody who knows a lot about higher education, of course, knows a lot about politics, but is just a really interesting person in his own right. So our guest is Kent Hance, and he is the Chancellor Emeritus at Texas Tech University. It's the system uh, of Texas Tech, which is 12 institutions, the Health Science Center and Angelo State University. And he was chancellor of the Texas Tech system from 2006 to 2014. He has been a legendary public official and lobbyist and lawyer in Texas uh, for many decades. He served as railroad commissioner in Texas in the 80s and 90s. He was a member of Congress in the 70s and 80s, very prominent. Uh, We'll get into some of this. He worked closely with President Reagan, was the author of President Reagan's tax cuts, very famously in 1981, and uh, just a legendary figure. And most interesting, I think, is Kent has his own podcast, and it is justifiably called The Most Interesting Storyteller in Texas. And that is absolutely true. I've had the opportunity to get to know him uh, more recently. And uh, just, a, just a very interesting, uh, funny, uh, great person to talk to. And, and I'm really enjoying getting to know him. And I want to introduce him to our audience. So uh, Kent Hance, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jason. Uh, I'm uh, honored to be on your program. Also, I'm honored that uh, you are one of our uh, professors, instructors at Texas Tech University Health Science Center and teach a leadership course in healthcare, and, and that's great. We really love the job you do. Yeah, that's correct. I, I've enjoyed getting to know Texas Tech, and I do teach a class there and uh, have enjoyed getting to know the students and faculty as well. I just wanted to start by, I mentioned your podcast, Most Interesting Storyteller in Texas. That's a very high bar because Texas is known for its great storytellers. And uh, I just was wondering, uh, from your perspective, how, how did you get that moniker? Well, I, I think it goes back when I was in the state Senate. I, I got elected when I was 30. And uh, I went in and talked to a lot of the older gentlemen and tried to get their knowledge. And, uh, you know, I'd ask them interesting stories to tell me. And I, I got some good ones and I had some to exchange with them. I think people think politics is a uh, tough and it is and can be mean but also there are a lot of really charismatic people that uh, have great stories on how they got where they are and and I always like to focus on those type of people one of the most interesting things i think about your career and i know you've been asked this question hundreds of thousands of times not just thousands of times is when you first ran for the united states congress 1978 Your opponent in that election, very famously, was a person who had not yet ever run for public office himself, was the son of a very famous Washington politician at that point, who would become much more famous in his own right. But going back to 1978, your opponent was someone named George W. Bush. And I just was wondering, uh, what were your impressions of him at the time? How did that campaign play out? And 
over the years, of course, your relationship with him changed. And, and uh, how did that work? When I first got to uh, know George W. Bush, you know, he, he was my opponent. We're running for Congress. And I always try to identify myself. I was the local guy. And I always try to put a label on my opponent. And he was the outsider from the Northeast. You know, he'd gone to a private prep school in uh, New Hampshire and gone to Yale and gone to Harvard for MBA. And I used those things against him. He, he said that he never thought he'd have a good education to be used against him. But uh, I proved him that it could be. Uh, I know one time we were running a marathon race for raise money for cancer, fight, you know, cancer research. There's 26 miles marathon. And he ran, he agreed to do it. And, and I said, no, I'm not going to run 26 miles, and die of a heart attack or something. But I entered someone that was a cross country runner for Texas tech. And I put on a, I got him a t-shirt <laughs> and the t-shirt said, Hans is a head. And, uh, then we put, <laughs> then we put a bumper sticker, Hans for Congress on his uh, jogging, uh, shorts. And I told him, you stay 15 feet in front of Bush. And if he speeds up, you speed up. If he slows down, you slow down. And Bush told me years later, he said, I followed that guy for 26 miles. And he said it was very depressing. And he said, I, I was not thinking that we'd ever be friends, but we got to be good friends. I was impressed with him. I, I knew he was going to do something well in politics. I, I, did, I wouldn't have guessed president at that time. But uh, I thought he'd be a governor or senator sometime simply because he didn't have to buy a name ID. His dad, George H.W. Bush, had run statewide in Texas before, and they had good name ID. And so I, I didn't have a you know, big advantage. Having, I'd, I'd been a state senator for four years when, uh, when we got in a campaign against him. You were elected to Congress that term, of course, and then... George W. Bush's father became Vice President Bush when President Reagan was elected, and you had to serve in Congress. You worked closely with President Reagan. How was your relationship with then Vice President Bush, given what you had been through running against his son? My relationship with uh, George H.W. Bush was excellent. The first event I went to at the Naval Observatory, where the Vice President lives, Barbara and George they went out of their way. They introduced me around. They said, this is the guy that beat our son for Congress. They, uh, <laughs> they went over the phone. That landline didn't have cell phones in. They went over the phone and uh, called George. And I visited with him over the phone. Uh, it was quite an experience. That is, and they were so nice. They, they were great people. And uh, they were very professional in the way they handled things. And uh, I also got to know Neil Bush. When I was running against George, I'd bump into Neil and got to be friends with him. And so the parents that night, they got George and they got Neil on the phone so I could talk to him from the vice president's house, the Naval Observatory. It, it was really pretty funny. I had a great visit with all of them. And when you left the, the Congress in the mid-1980s, you became railroad commissioner, which is a very important statewide position in Texas. And did some other things. And as your career was ongoing, of course, George W. Bush was pursuing his own career, which eventually led him to run for governor of Texas in 1994. How did your relationship with him evolve over that time? It was very good. Uh, we got to be very good friends. 
And then in 94, when he announced, and really in 93, when he announced for the 94 election, I was his first large contributor. I gave $10,000, which in, uh, that's a lot of money in 93, a lot of money now. And that uh, I gave $10,000. And so, you know, here he was, his former opponent was uh, getting out front for him. And I, I raised money for him and watched him win. And at that time, we were both Republicans. I'd, I ran as a Democrat for Congress and then later changed parties. I'm from a conservative area, and the Democrats had moved too far to the left. And so uh, I changed and uh, carried Reagan's tax cut and, uh, and helped on the budget cuts as well. Yeah, talk about that. Uh, President Reagan's tax cut in 1981, very famously, I believe to this day, when adjusted for inflation, is still the largest tax cut ever implemented in American history. And you that was your bill. You introduced that bill, obviously worked very closely with the president. How did that come about? Came about that it, when, when Reagan won in uh, 1980, Republicans controlled the Senate, but the Democrats controlled the House. And the uh, president could not get anything passed without having some Democrats help him in the House. And so after he won and in uh, January of that year, he called uh, some of us down to the uh, White House and talked to us about helping him on his projects. And uh, I agreed to uh, Senator Phil Graham, who was a House member at the time and later went on to be the U.S. Senate, Senator Phil Graham agreed to. And so what I did uh, is I, ca- I was on Ways and Means Committee and I carried the tax cut. We were able to pass it. We had 78 Democrats vote for the tax cut. Now, in this day and time, if you're a Republican, you couldn't get 78 Democrats to vote for anything. And if you were a Democrat, you couldn't get 78 Republicans. It was easier then to have a bipartisan approach on legislation, which made it easier to sell. But with redistricting taking a place over the last you know, 30 years, uh, more people have been squeezed out of the middle. And that if they've got a Democrat opponent, if it's a Democrat opponent, they have to run to the left real hard, or if it's Republican, they have to you know run to the right real hard. You really don't have but about thirty-five to forty-five congressional districts that are truly swing districts can go either way, and uh, that's that's cut down on the middle and it's cut down on compromise. And how did you, over time, you gained experience and more importantly, uh, just a personal interest in leadership and higher education? And what spurred your interest in that? And what, what led you in the direction that became eventually you becoming the chancellor of Texas Tech University system? Well, I had been a professor. I would taught uh, business courses uh, in Texas Tech as a law school, two medical schools, and seven nursing schools. It, you know, it's huge. But I had uh, been involved in, as a professor before I went to Congress. And I enjoyed being a professor, a lot of fun, and that I uh, enjoyed higher ed. It's fun being a professor. If you want to really learn a subject, just teach it. You know, then you've got to be well prepared because there's going to be some kid ask you some question. You've got no idea what he's talking about if you're not well prepared. And I uh, had served in Congress, had represented the area of Lubbock where the main campus is, and had... uh, really been involved in that. And so um, they uh, were looking for a new chancellor at Texas Tech, and they interviewed me, and, and then they talked to me and to take the job, and then I 
turned them down and then they came back later and offered it again and came to my senses and took it. It was a great experience. I'd been a professor there before and and I was uh, now chancellor. I'd been there about two weeks and a professor came to see me and he said, you know, chancellor, I'm not getting paid enough. And I said, well, I understand that. And he said, my office too small, far away. And uh, I, I don't have good equipment. I, I need a new uh, computer and that I need a new parking space. Finally, I said, uh, Dr. So-and-so, I wish I had a hundred just like you. He said, why? And I said, because right now I've got 2,000 just like you. You know, I, I want to cut that number down. <laughs> and he kind of laughed, and I had my secretary. I, I got the guy up. You know, I stood up and reached out my hand, and he grabbed my hand, and I pulled him out of his chair. And then I told her that in the future, don't schedule these people. There's a reason we have a provost, and the provost supposed to meet with those people, not me. I was going to ask you something along those lines. You had a very long, successful career as a federal public official, served in the state legislature, was a statewide official, and uh, you know, had, been, had been a lawyer and a very successful career in the private sector in Texas. And then you get this role as chancellor, higher education, a large uh, public institution. And what were your observations uh, in the time that you held that job that were maybe different than what you expected them to be related to what you thought higher education would be like? Well, I tried to stay out of the uh, internal political politics of higher ed. Uh, Henry Kissinger one time told me that the meanest, toughest politics in the world uh, had to do with higher education politics. And I said, why do you think it's that way? And he said, there's so little to fight over. And, and you know, I, he, he may have been correct. But I... Uh, I did not try to become buddies with the faculty. I didn't want to be enemies. The president of each campus was in charge of getting along with the faculty and uh, that I might have some, you know, interests that, that I'd want to explore with various faculty members. But overall, I kind of let them take care of that and that I raised money and I worked the legislature for money and uh, it was very important. There's so much controversy in higher education today, mostly related to the politics of higher education, the, the, the curriculums that are taught and the political persuasion of the faculty, the ability of students to voice their opinion, the type of books that are read, you know, all of these things that we're seeing play out across the country. And I know in Texas, uh, it's first among them for some of those controversies. Having lived on all sides of this equation, what, what's your perspective of higher education today and some of those controversies? Well, I, I think the one thing that you, you have to do in higher ed is that uh, you have to have people that are well prepared to think, to think through the process, you know, with a liberal arts education or business or engineering degree or whatever. I always took the position that Texas Tech was uh, for uh, freedom of speech. And that freedom of speech doesn't mean that, well, we'll have a committee and we'll decide what's free and what's not. And, and look, there are people that are for freedom of speech as long as they agree with you. And if they don't agree with you, it's, well, you know, we can't have that. I've always taken the position that we need to have freedom of speech. I hired uh, Bob Kruger, who was one of our government professors, and he was a liberal Democrat from Texas and serving the House and Senate and Congress. And then I uh, also hired Al Gonzalez, who had been general counsel for Bush at the White House and, 
and was not liked well by ACLU because he had he had helped solidify. Uh, he was not liked by a lot of the professors because he had helped establish uh, Gitmo, uh, where they were keeping soldiers. But those were two of the most popular professors I had, one a conservative Republican, one a liberal Democrat. But we're in the idea business in, in uh, higher ed. Uh, we're not in the liberal idea business. We're not in the conservative idea business. We're in all idea businesses. And uh, I think there are some professors that if you agree with their agenda, then they want you involved. I can tell you whether I agree or disagree with your agenda. We are in the idea business. And we want people to discuss ideas. We don't discuss backgrounds. Uh, we want them to think about what they stand for. I think that that's the main thing that you need to be doing in college, the ability to think. I uh, am somewhat concerned that we have people in higher ed that they think their job is just to change everybody's position on everything and, and become very liberal or, or very woke. And uh, and I don't agree with that. I, I think they, they need to tell their side of the story and others can tell their side of the story. And then people can decide what they want to be and what they want their position to be. How do you feel like uh, with regard to the politics, not just of higher education, but the, the public discourse? You mentioned that the tax bill that you led for President Reagan, 78 people crossed the aisle to support that. That is inconceivable today. If you could get one, that would be a, a very heavy lift. Uh, You've lived it, again, been on all sides. What, what's your impression of the direction of our national politics today, and, and what can we do to bring more bipartisanship to the debate? Well, I think a couple of things happen. One, uh, cable television has come about, and that to get on cable television, you better say something pretty sensational or they won't get you on there. And uh, if you look at uh, CNN or MSNBC, they're going to be very liberal. If you look at Fox, it's going to be very conservative. and so. You, people have a tendency to tune in to what they like, you know, what they agree with. That has caused people to be more split and more solid in, in their position to the left or the right and uh, not in a, a medium position. And it used to, when I was in Congress, if you ask somebody, who do you hate? They go, oh, I don't hate anybody. And now if you ask somebody who they hate, hell, you have to pull up a chair. You know, they're going to list a lot of names and it's unfortunate. And, you know, in name calling, calling somebody an idiot, you know, after hours, after you had a debate and referring to somebody as an idiot or, or, uh, you know, a loon or whatever, th that does not help. Uh, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill used to get together at the White House at night and they'd come up with all kinds of deals. The low income housing tax credit that was established by Jack Kemp out of Buffalo, Republican. That was presented as a compromise bill to get the private sector involved in public housing. And so the result was it passed in the House 415 to 1 and passed in the Senate 38 to nothing. That program has been introduced and grown and been a positive under every president since then, Democrats, Republicans, didn't matter whether it's Bush or Obama or Clinton or whoever, they've, they've all supported it. And supported it big time, and that, that I think that's very important. And that uh, they can do things and work together. And I, I wish we could see more of that. 
but it's going to take someone really involved to get these things uh, settled down. In the redistricting, every state wants to have more people with seniority. And so what they do when they redistrict, they try to protect the Republicans and the Democrats that have a lot of seniority so they can get to be a committee chairman and maybe help that group later. But uh, that's uh, it's not good for the country, in my opinion. Our guest today has been Kent Hance. He is a former U.S. congressman and Chancellor Emeritus at the Texas Tech University System. Chancellor Hance, thank you very much. And if someone, uh, one of our listeners, wanted to get in touch with you, learn more about you, find you, and listen to your podcast, how would they do so? Well, there's several ways to uh, listen to my podcast. They could just go to uh, Spotify or, or they could go to Google and type in Kent Hance, best storyteller in Texas, and it'll take you right to it. And uh, you can go from there. And I, I think you'd really enjoy it. Uh, I've interviewed uh, Ben Carson. Uh, he was a cabinet member, you remember, and, and uh, Rick Perry, who was governor, and and then Ed Whitaker, uh, who was CEO and chairman of the board of AT&T for 18 years, and then CEO and chairman of the board of General Motors. And so they, they try to be fun interviews. We don't get into in-depth politics. We don't hate anyone. Uh, we We like all kinds of people. And I have a cross-section, and that I, I think you'd really enjoy it. There's some funny stories in there as well. Chancellor Hans, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Jason. Uh, it's, it's a fun interview. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Career Education Report. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, visit our website at career.org and follow us on Twitter at CQED. That's at C-E-C-U-E-D. Thank you for listening.